Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with me today, I have Simon Lambert from Caterham Cars. Hi, Simon. Hi, Sam. How are you? Very good. Very good. Thanks. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of, you know, who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, well, I am the Motorsport and Technical Director for Caterham Cars. It's important that everyone who works here has at least two jobs. Um, <laughs> uh, so my time is split depending on what's happening during the year. But obviously, uh, we're about to head into new race season. So I'm very focused on that at the moment. And over the winter, it's sort of edged towards the engineering side. But fortunately, I have a, a competent engineering team. Um, that can take care of things when I'm busy at the track. I've been doing that for about the last 10 years and uh, just coming up to 20 years at Caterham, believe it or not. Wow. That's, that's, that's a long time. It is a long time and it's worse than that. Um, I was a supplier to Caterham for 10 years before <laughs> that. Um, yeah, I started when I was five and I've been an owner for 25 years. Nice, nice. Okay, so let's, let's sort of go back to the beginning. Where does mm-hmm. it all begin? Have you been a car person since year dot? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up with uh, top trumps and just being fascinated by whatever my dad had. And as, as back in those days, everyone had company cars. And uh, so we used to have Ford brochures lying around the house all the time. And I knew them from cover to cover. So as a, a six-year-old, I could tell you the difference between a, a Cortina 1.6 GL and an L just by looking at them as nice. they pass. Yeah. Nice. And then, um, so then, yeah, so you progressed from being six yeah well it depends who you ask (laughs) um yeah and then what so what was your did you go straight into sort of car-based stuff work-wise or did you study something what happened uh a lot happened between uh sort of then and i i ended up working for a, a very small division of a car dealership that was a ford power product dealer 
which is an unusual arm of Ford. Most people won't know what that is. And we sold uh, engines and Ford components to all areas of industry. And two places we specialized. One was offshore oil rigs and engines for there, which was Mm -hmm. very interesting. And the car industry as well. And Caterham was one of our customers. So we were supplying Caterham with Ford Uh. engines, um, Ford gearboxes, differentials, and other bits and pieces. Um, so I knew Caterham, obviously being a car nuts, you, you know all about them, but I became a supplier to them in uh, 1990. Ah, and then, so, so what does that sort of entail? Do they send you, what were you, were you in charge of at that point? They send you the details of an engine they want and then Ford makes it or how does it work? It's, it's completely the other way around really. <laughs> you know, and, and it's not too different today. Um, we are a very, very small company. We have a big mm. shop window. Lots of people know us, but we are a small company. So it's, it was a case of shopping around to see what was available. Uh, unfortunately for me back then is there were very few companies doing or geared up in the way that Ford were to be able to pro- provide small manufacturers with engines and components. It's mm. a very, very specialist arm and it's sort of grown out of the tractors randomly. Um, <laughs> okay. a, a handful of people left in a Ford office and had managed to keep it going. It's still going to this day um, very successfully. So, yeah, we, we were providing the engines for a while. Unfortunately, the full product in suits, so it just it um, ended up being gearboxes, diffs, and a few other bits and pieces yeah. of the car. But it did mean that I kept uh, coming to Dartford for meetings from <laughs> time to time. Any excuse, really, to have a wander yeah. around the factory. Um, we'd be lent the car every now and again nice. uh, for whatever reason, yeah. Uh, so uh, I was determined to buy one. Yeah. Um, uh, unfortunately, my other half is an absolute car nut as well. Uh, which is important. It's important that one of us has a proper job so she can afford <laughs> the things we want to have. Yeah. Um, and so we were saving up to buy a seven um, uh, whilst I was a supplier. Yeah. And then in, oof, must have been the back end of 94, as the account manager for Caterham, it's document came through my desk. It might have even been a fax, you know, one of those heated things yeah. that curled up. Yeah. <laughs> All about this new race series called the Scholarship. It's for completely novice drivers. Uh, it was subsidized by the sponsorship it was very low price it was a fantastic thing and they wanted us to be a sponsor and i'm reading through this thing thinking this is all my dreams come true i could i could have a catering and i could become a racing driver as well um I yeah do. so i just went massively into debt and did that it seemed like a good idea at the time oh, perfect so is that yeah. like that's like the original academy it's the, it's the original academy it was called scholarship for a while yeah. and it changed its name i can't remember when to be honest it was uh, slightly before i joined but yeah, that makes me Academy driver number one. So it's, it's nice. actually a bizarre twist of fate that now <laughs> Academy is my baby and I, I look after it and have turned it into what it is today. What was it like back then? Like, what, Is the format similar or has it changed quite a lot? In some ways it was. It, we were all novices, but there was, there was a, a lot fewer controls, far fewer controls. Uh, so people were doing other little bits of racing around the outside. Um, some people had significantly more experienced than others i mean track days weren't a a readily available thing back then either Mm. and we talk about the mid 90s it sounds like forever ago depending on how how old you are sound like that long ago to me well it doesn't to me but to other people yes it might as well be prehistory cars. (laughs) the the format of the program was uh two auto tests then four sprints hill climbs and two races at the end of the year yeah uh, so my claim to fame was I won the very first Academy race. It's something I'm very, very proud nice. of. Nice. Yeah. That's, yeah. You, can, you can hold that up high for forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's, a, it's a very happy memory. You know, I am yeah. very proud of that. So it, it retains a lot of the same features. The car has progressed. 
um, the professionalism with which we run the series and our capability of providing support to the drivers has grown immensely. You know, we've got 25 years of experience now doing this. Mm. Perhaps the biggest change is at the end of that academy year, the next step was to um, a series that was team supported, uh, got through a lot of tyres, was very, very serious. It was an yeah. enormous step. You know, everything I'd spent had gone into this um, scholarship year and there was nowhere I could continue. Yeah. Um, but since the uh, early 2000s, we've been building this, what we call a ladder of motorsport. So you can come out of academy and progress into road sport. The names get a little bit confusing, but which is almost a second year of academy. It's a, it's a minor modification to your car. Yeah. And it's geared purely towards those people that have come out of academy the previous year and then they move on and so on and up through the ladder. And it means you can have four years of racing in the same car. The car gets upgraded each year. It feels different. You, you can tell it's faster by, um, um, or you shouldn't need to say it's faster by looking at the uh, timer. It will feel yeah. much different. It'll give you a different experience. Racing against the people you've, you've come through racing with, so you get to know them, and the camaraderie in the paddock's yeah, fantastic. That's fun. Yeah. So uh, can you explain, like, let's, let's go through the ladder in terms of the, the car. So you start off, what is the first car? How much does it cost? What's the process? Academy year one. So the Academy package, when you buy the Academy, Academy is a package rather than just a car. Yep. Um, the car itself is essentially a 7270 stripped out. Yep. Um, the engine is slightly detuned, 125 horsepower, five-speed gearbox, open differential. Uh, all the componentry on it is effectively road-based. It's very, very simple um, and low cost. It's to keep the cost of the car down. Yep. Uh, there's no carbon fiber on there. If you break that, that's just expensive. You don't need yep. to do that. So we don't do that sort of thing. The tyres are a very big part of Academy. Um, they're terrible. They're really awful. But they, they, <laughs> and they even say Academy around the outside of it as well. We're so proud of them. Um, but they teach people car control at a much lower speed. Okay. And competitors have tried to do the same. And, and around the world, actually, we, we've had the sort of feedback from people who have done those series who say to us, now we understand why you, you use those tyres. It'd be much easier to sell if you had nice, grippy, sexy tyres, yeah. that just means that you're more likely to have an accident and at a higher speed. So 100%. we, we, we want to hang on to our customers, you know, so we, yeah. we sort of can teach them car control through through the, the academy. The car is one part. The package of racing is the other part. And I would say included in that package is the 55 other drivers to take part in it. You're going to do uh, a sprint and six races. Um, in fact, it's going to be seven races next year, actually. So that has changed quite a lot. But uh, one of the first things we do is we sit everyone down in a room in December and tell them what's going to happen in the year to prepare them for the year, basically. It's what previous Academy drivers said we should have done. So we've been doing it for 15 Mm -hmm. years now. And you've got 56 strangers in the room. No one knows each other. I I stand in front of them and tell them, you're going to make some great friends every year. And the look on their faces every year without fail is, yeah, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> i'm here to, to to live out my racing dream i'm not gonna make you know i've I'm got friends fine yeah and every year we have drivers that come back from the previous year to help out they, they do it they, we have to turn them away actually we're gonna yeah. have so many we can fit on the sofas who will say he's not lying you know i've just been to his wedding i'm going skiing with him it, it's That's cool. you've got 56 very like-minded people yeah and they're all achieving a, a sort of a common goal or a common dream and they can't help but find friends amongst that, which is fantastic. And selfishly, it's great for catering because you want to carry on racing with your mates. Yeah. So, um, so that's Academy in a, in a very, very brief yeah. nutshell. I could talk about that all day. And how much does the Academy package? 
I would love to tell you, but I can't remember. It gets passed to me. Uh, it's about, I think it is uh, 29.995, something. Okay. Like it gets passed to over to me after the salesman have done their bit, if you like. Yeah. You know, so from Academy, you move into road sport. Uh, we can't think of a better name at the moment. That's, that's the problem there. It's the Academy car on those tyres that you wanted and with a rear anti-roll bar. So a subtle change to the, to the suspension just to add a little level more control. And then you enter a, a full proper race season, seven weekends, two races every weekend. Yeah, so it's 14 rounds. Moving on from there to 7270. So that's very much, um, in fact, like what suited to as a road yeah. car behind me um, uh, with a cage on, etc. You've taken the Academy car and we've changed the suspension now to stiffer track orientated suspension. Uh, and the rev limit goes up um, because without the windscreen on, you can go a bit faster. But essentially, mechanically, the car is the same. There's no point in giving it a whole load more power and doing other things to the car because yeah. your experience won't grow necessarily. So these guys are into their third year. They've now got a car that feels like a racing car. It looks like it um, too. Um, uh, the, the race formats are the same, seven, seven weekends, two races each weekend. The races grow to 30 minutes in length, which is actually a very long time in a racing car. A very yeah. long time. Yeah, so the day. first ones are 20. The first one's a 20, yeah, and then we move to a 30-minute race. And do you do it over over a Saturday, Sunday, or just a Saturday? Saturday? Normally Saturday, Sunday. We have qualifying Saturday morning, race Saturday afternoon, and then a second race on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Some circuits are one day, very few. Most people like to spread the weekend out, and they enjoy testing on the Friday and sometimes on the Thursday as well. Yeah, A track day with no rules is what's often called, which the track <laughs> operators won't thank us for. It's, um, it's pretty close to that. Yeah, it is. It's, I, I've often referred to it as race one. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, or race lost for a lot of people. Race lost, yes. It's when, it is when all the drama happens. Yeah. So uh, we'll tell you about our support team, in fact, in a second. Yeah. So that's 7270. And then the, the fourth and final year with that car is 7310. So that's reflecting the road range then, 270 and 310. And it's only at that point, that fourth year, where we give them more power. So you've got a power increase to 152 horsepower and a limb to slip diff. So you can power slide out of corners and look like a hero, even though you're going slower. (laughs) And that is probably the best car we make. It came about by accident uh, as a road car, I should say. It was a replacement for an outgoing series with the Ford Sigma engine that we use had a subtle change from um, fixed cam to variable valve time. And we did a a conversion to the car for for the race series. Yeah. Um, And... Uh, one of the engineers came into my office and he just said, have you, have you driven a car? No, I haven't yet. And someone else came in, have you driven the car? No, this is all, I there's something <laughs> badly wrong with it. So I, I took it out for a drive and I phoned up one of my colleagues at uh, the commercial director. Here he yeah. is. This is him here. And this is photographic evidence of him actually hitting an apex. Which is, <laughs> who knew? I said, you need to come up here and drive this car. So he drove it as well. And it's just the perfect seven. 152 horsepower is just exactly right for the car. You know, it's, it's enough power to feel fast um, and remain utterly controllable. When you get into the, the fast and the bigger engine cars, the car starts calling the shots. Yeah. And whilst a lot of experienced drivers will really enjoy it, and that's the right car for them, for, for most people getting into a Caterham, that level is, is all you'll ever need. Yeah, I've only driven one Caterham in the last couple of years. And it was a 310R. Okay, yep. And it was it was a slightly wet, crappy day. And I had the car for a day. And it was it's one of my top sort of five 
driving experiences, just honing around some small, muddy, slightly damp roads in the rain in a 310. Like it had more than enough power and not tons of grip being on, I think, on the slightly stickier compound in the wet. And it was just, it was amazing. (laughs) Absolutely amazing. It's disappointing to hear that it's only in the top five, you know, rather than the top three. We'll try harder. But, but yeah, you know, for me, if you want to experience driving, it's you want the car to move about and you want to be able to yeah. control that with, with your right foot, yeah? And it's kind of pointless having an enormous grip, super high-performance car because you just can't do that um, unless you're some kind of superhuman mm. or you have, you know, a total disregard for your car and yeah, everyone else around track. you and a lot of space. A lot yeah. of space, yeah. Um, so whilst the you know, 7310 is, is just the best car we make, it, it just is. Possibly why I own an all 420, because, you know, you never practice what you preach. Uh, <laughs> but it's why I think the 7160, the little three-cylinder Suzuki-powered yeah. car, is an absolutely amazing car. It's, it's hugely overlooked um, here in the UK, because people can't get their head past the 80 horsepower, you know? Nice. yeah. Um, but on 155 tyres, you can have so much fun. You can go round and round about absolutely sideways at sort of, you know, 15, 20 miles an hour. Yeah. People walking past, pointing at you, wondering what you're doing. But you're having a really good time. I, I had a, a track evening at Donington once uh, with a, a friend that was running the day. Yeah. And we had at our disposal a 620, you know, talking one mm. of the world's fastest cars here, and a 160. Took 620 out, did a couple of laps, and then spent the next three hours driving 160. <laughs> I, I was just having a better time. You know, yeah. you, you, you're having you're sliding everywhere like 1950s four wheel drifts. And then all of a sudden you realize you're catching that M3, you know, just, just (laughs) bit by bit. And then the next 10 laps become ever so focused as you gain on them by about a quarter of a second. Yeah. Yeah, There is a lot to be said for driving, not like slow car fast. Obviously you drive on track, you want to drive them all fast, but Mm. if you're in a slower car, catching up with other cars is amazing fun. Whereas if you're in a car that's just faster, you're only losing that race. If someone catches you, it's because you're worse at driving. Whereas yes. catching up to someone in a really lightweight car that you might say has 80 horsepower when the person pulls in and be like, oh, what engine yes. have you got in that? Yeah. Like, only eight horsepower. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. It's just so much fun. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great car to drive. You know, people do need to drive it to appreciate it. So having the, the narrow tyres is obviously a, a very big thing. It's, yeah. uh, it allows us to, to exploit just the 80 horsepower. Yeah. So with the with the racing, do some people stick in a certain year or do they all sort of migrate up to the top evolution of that car and then stay at the top? In general, people move up. Uh, we've built a ladder and people want to, it's successful because drivers want to progress. You, you don't want to yeah. stay doing the same thing. You know, if, you, if you've done well or, or you, want, you want to move on, you want to see progression mm-hmm. yourself. So a, Academy is a one year deal only. It is not with drivers, it can only be. And the follow-on series, Road Sport, is a one-year deal only as well. There's yeah. a limited amount of, uh, of experience those guys have got. So we, you know, it's quite mercenary, but they understand from the start that they are going to move on out to do something else or hopefully into 270. Yeah. At that third level, you can stay there if you want, as long as you like, as long as we have space. Yeah. But most people don't. They want the upgrade and they want to move on. And we find that most people's um, sort of experience of racing is, a, is a somewhere between a two- and a four-year life cycle. Yeah. You know, after after that sort of time, um, they've uh, scratched that itch and they've, they've done it and are going to move on in their lives. Yeah. But fortunately for us, a number of people want to carry on and go further. And so we have uh, the 7420, 
which is a dedicated race car from um, the outset, full race suspension, uh, bespoke to the car, a six-speed uh, sequential gearbox. We don't declare the power output on that engine anymore. It's more than we originally said. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, It's the fastest car you can race without slicks or wings. Okay. So it's roughly on a par with what Formula Ford used to be pre, uh, so pre-wings. What, so what's that in terms of like a lap time of... Uh, do you know Silverstone? It's probably not a great Caterham track, oh, Silverstone. No, I, and I'd love to quote one at you, and I should have been more prepared, but I, 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 I right. really can't. Yeah, yeah. I'd have no, to sit here. Do you know what that compares to, to like a... Like a, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. Like a, a modern car driving around, probably a lot faster. Yeah, I mean... It, it, it's difficult to put to put it in terms of time sometimes, but um, yeah. there isn't a road car that could that could stay with it on track. Yeah, the, so, in terms of the driving experience, how does that change from the, the your, your first car to the fully upgraded? Like, what is it? The feel of the car? How does it feel different? That's one of the most important factors for us. Obviously, the car goes faster. Yeah, but uh, for me as we've built the ladder it has always been about improving the experience for the driver from one year to the next so that they gain something you don't want to spend some money upgrading your car and going to another year and just find it feels the same yeah if it feels the same and everyone on the uh, on the grid is going two seconds a lap faster Mm. you won't notice you've had a change so when you go from academy to road sport you suddenly find this world of grip and about three seconds a lap with with the better tires and the rear anti-roll bar offers um, some more body control as well. You get to 270 with a stiffer suspension and we're taking the windscreen and lights off. It looks and feels like a racing car. Mm. And it feels more like a, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but go-kart style handling because the suspension is so stiff. At 310, you've now got a bit more power and you've got a limited diff. So you can get on the power out of the corner a little bit earlier and you maybe light up the rear and you have to provide a little bit of opposite lock. Moving into 420, all of that is just um, um, exaggerated. You know, it's a very, very fast car. It's got still too much power for the amount of grip it's got. So it will slide about and you have to manhandle it everywhere. Yeah. But as you come up and your driving experience grows, you end up with a much more rewarding driving experience. And some people will say if they've done um, a couple of years of racing in Academy Road Sport, that actually good driving 420 felt easier to them. And it's now a little mm. bit more natural and they can control the car better because of it's it's got more control over the rear wheels through the power yeah you know and suspension is a little bit more tunable there's more they can do with the car so it's it's not as if um it becomes an uncontrollable car or a knife edge car we, we 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 step away from that as much as we can there are faster cars out there that's for sure but there won't be as much fun to drive you know it, people often equate speed um to fun yeah, uh, and, and the two things the are yeah it's it is absolutely not the same you know, just because you're doing 600 miles an hour across the Atlantic in a 747, yeah? yeah, it's not as much fun as going downhill on a mountain bike at 30 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Good analogy there. Are you on a similar, or you just get a slightly grippier, but you're on one tyre, not not one tyre throughout, but you don't have a wet tyre? For the Academy, Academy has its own tyre, yeah, which, which is based on um, a, a basic road tyre. The Middle series, as you like to call them, uh, run on the Avon ZZS, which was designed for Caterham um, and developed on the Caterham. And the top series has the Avon ZZR, which is as close to being a slick as you can legally get. It's still road mm. legal with very little tread pattern. And they use the ZZS as a wet tyre. Okay. Yeah, because that was one of the things I did. Um, I do some radical racing and I raced their 
for SR1 Cup, which was this mm. sort of their, their entry level thing. Yeah. And we had a, a tire with very little tread with a really hard compound. And that was yeah. your, that was your tire. That was the tire. Yeah, yeah. And you were limited to a certain number per season, etc. And in the wet, it was, I mean, it was just dangerous to be honest. It was, <laughs> it was <laughs> I, 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 I do wonder now if I went back having had more experience and drove the same car, but it was still like, you just aquaplane a lot. If it was any sort of standing water or anything, Radical is obviously a high grip car. It's an aero car. So it's probably quite a different driving experience. Uh, In the wet in the seven, it's going to move around an awful lot. And that's fine. Um, When back in the days when I used to be racing, um, I used to find that if it got very wet, there was a woodcotter at Silverstone. You used to get a couple of um, little rivers that run across the track. Yeah, just before the start finish line on the curb. And you see people hit them and understeer and it really takes speed out. So for me, what worked, it was my driving style, if you like, was if you went at them slightly sideways, you just sort of went through them <laughs> and carried up, on up the road. Yeah, <laughs> I remember doing that one day and getting more and more of, a, 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 more of an angle. I came back into the pits and uh, my other half in time with me, she said, uh, you enjoying that, way? <laughs> yes. Think it was fast, do you? <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, you can get carried away and enjoy yourself a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, but you know, a caterum, we say it's not big and it's not clever. We are very lucky with what we have there. If you put the best designers in a room and said, uh, we want you to deliver the same driving experience, the same driving experience as seven, they're unlikely to come out with anything other than another seven. Yeah. The, uh, dynamically, the engine's too far forwards. You sit too far back. You end up with these, these masses at either end of the car, which means that when it starts to rotate, um, it happens. It actually happens quite slowly in terms of the, the car. So it communicates that to the driver. Yeah, so you really get a feel for what the car's doing. Mm. If you compare that to a, a, a really well-engineered similar car, like an Elise, which is an excellent car, it really is. But the uh, and the the car dynamics mean that um, when it starts to break away, you get very little notice. Mm. You know, I used to really enjoy driving the Elise, but I felt like I ought to have three or four Red Bulls first to stay on top of it if you're going to push it hard. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes occasion uh, a lot of fun to drive. You know, we, we don't have the weights. That's obviously an enormous factor in all of this. Yeah. But it's, it's where the weight in the car actually is um, that really counts for it. Yeah, that's definitely like whenever I've driven Caterham a couple of times on track and a little bit on the road and immediately you're sometimes a little bit intimidated because you're like, oh, this one's got more power than the last time or some crazy brake horsepower per ton figure. But like you said, they they just communicate everything. And also yeah. the, the layout is really friendly. Like if you've driven mid-engine stuff and you go to something like a Caterham, you're like, oh, this is not so bad. This is okay. Like it's moving around and it's not that much of an issue. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And isn't that a great feeling? It the is. car moving around is, is a great feeling, yeah. And definitely, I think a lot of people end up going down this route. And, and I've sort of, I've done this myself where you're like, I would like to drive faster and grippier. And, mm-hmm. and that's the sort of avenue I chose. But mm. going from, for me, SR1 to SR3, was essentially like, it was basically a more stable car, but mm. much more downforce. And then there was the transition to slicks and wets, mm-hmm. which 
For anyone out there that's considering changing to slicks and wets from a normal tire, it's one of the most expensive things you can do. (laughs) The change from going from a normal road type tire all the time to slicks and wets, just it's very expensive, isn't it? So one of the uh, sort of principles in catering racing is built on catering motorsport is built on it is really about um, value. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a crude way, I say it's more of a sort of pile them high racing. We want as many people racing rather than a few people racing and extracting uh, as much revenue out of that, that race yeah. as we possibly can. So it does make us unusual because achieving a mass of people is actually a harder task. Um, you know, last year we had over 200 registered drivers. It makes us the largest factory back series in the UK, yeah. um, possibly in Europe as well, in fact. But keeping the cost low is ever so important, and that's why we run on these tyres. You know, we, we could run six and wets. But all that's going to do, everyone's going to be in the same boat, you know, performance-wise. They're just going to be spending more money. So we don't want to go down that uh, down that route. But the other thing we, we, we uh, didn't mention earlier on is the level of support we provide, mm. which is unusual as well. So we take a truck full of parts and a team of technicians from the factory and from our uh, other workshops uh, to have a race meeting to look after the guys in academy and road sport others can have it it's not optional but they're there to keep people racing all weekend long and it's included okay it's, uh, racing there's no such thing as cheap racing you know it's good value racing for what you're spending which is yeah. where we believe we are but it's still never cheap and the, the other biggest area is time it takes a lot of time up and uh, people are uh, uh, time poor and so if they're committing a number of weekends and there'll be a test day it might be a thursday to friday saturday and sunday the last thing they want is an accident on Friday morning, which ruins that weekend and they can't do anything. You know, yeah, it's that, it's that. That's the worst. <laughs> yeah, the, the money's annoying, uh, but the loss of time is, a, is a, yeah. a really big deal for them. But because it's a nice, simple car, um, it's, it's easy for us to put it back together and get it back out again. You know, you, you can knock a corner off a cage from it and you'll be back racing again. And if you're lucky, you won't miss a session of your um, test day. Nice. You know? Drivers try. It's like a challenge to empty the parts truck on a, on a Friday. But, uh, and, and the team take pride in, in getting people out and not losing that time. You know, we'll do engine changes and gearbox changes and lose various bits and pieces. What's the quickest you've done, like something big, like an engine change? Uh, it's not very quick, actually. Um, one of the issues with it, with occasion is it's very small, you might have noticed. Yeah. And so packaging is, is difficult. Okay. So getting the engine out is actually um, uh, a bit of a pain. You know, we mm. do, do it. well, actually getting the gearbox out is far worse because the engine has to come out to get the gearbox out yeah. as well. Um, we've done a, a gearbox change in about an hour and 10 minutes, which is, um, you know, not fast that, by any means, but in catering that terms, pretty quick. In catering terms, it's very rapid. The entire engine out, dismantling the gearbox <laughs> out, new gearbox in. Yeah. Um, and in that time, you know, that it can be the time between sessions on, on a track day and someone's back out or on a test day and someone's back out again. Yeah. Um, and with those major parts, we've tried to keep the costs as low as possible as well. So when we talk about the engines in Academy, Road Sport, 270, and even 310, which has our own cams in, we do as little to the engine as we possibly can. You know, we are a tiny company. We have a very limited development budget. Ford is a massive company, and they will have spent hundreds of millions of dollars developing those engines yeah. over years. Yeah. Uh, so who am I to know better than them? So if we can take it in its absolute standard format, we, although we're racing it and revving it high, we're not stressing it because you're pushing along a 500 kilo car rather than a 1500 kilo car, yeah. you know, with four Germans in their luggage. Big difference. Uh, it, it does make a huge difference. So by using a standard engine, we keep the cost down. So uh, a repl- oh, you, 
I'm going to quote myself or say, don't quote me, but a, um, <laughs> a replacement engine is, is about £4,000. That's very reasonable. Which if you've been racing radical, you will know how yeah. reasonable that is. I think one of the challenges we have is that um, because we bring in novices in the academy and they, they don't know racing before, they probably don't know how cheap that is. And I have had conversations with yeah. people that have said, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, your engine's it's just died, you know? That's, yeah. That's, that's the end of that. You're going to need a new one. How much is that? It was about £4,000. £4,000. I've only been racing with that for four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the days of 20 hours on an engine and an 80, uh, a sort of eight grand rebuild, long gone. We, we want to keep people out, out there racing for as long as possible and spending as little as, it, as possible, really. That is such an important factor. And having, yeah, like you said, components, a Ford engine that mm. you're not, are you, do they rev a bit more or are they the same? No, we, we do rev them higher. Um, um, so we rev, yeah, we, we do rev uh, both the variants, the Sigma and the Duratec that we use in the 420. We, we, we rev them higher, but um, to no in effect. And basically? We, we, we don't, it's, it, um, the rev limit in 420 is 7,400, so yeah. that's the higher of the two. Uh, and realistically, that's not very high. You know, it's not the eight yeah, to 9,000 highly strong um, that you could go to. There's just no benefit to us to do that. And yeah, like you said, using an engine like that in a car that's very light, it's just the engine is just not stressed at all. In comparison to, no, and uh, compared to race engines of old or even a, a mm. bespoke engine now, Ford have to comply to incredibly strict emission regulations in the UK and particularly in the states where um, they still have to comply after a hundred thousand miles. Yeah, so the engines are built for durability, so they don't wear out. Uh, once upon a time, it used to be with the, like the Rover K series and older engines uh, in racing that a fresh engine was the best engine you could possibly have, and that's yeah. going to be its peak. Yeah. Now we encourage our drivers to get a thousand miles on them first because until then they'll be relatively tight. And okay. You know. Yeah. And I, I do remember when we went to spa for the first time with the new series, it was probably about 2010, 2011 with, with this engine. Uh, the lap record was set with an engine over 200 hours on it, you know, oh, so nice. 20, 20 times or sorry, 10 times what the old rebuild. Um, average that's amazing. Would have been. Yeah. That's such a great from like an owner point mm. of view, if you're getting in, all of these costs just keeping them down because invariably mm. motorsport is more expensive than anyone wants it to be. It is, and it's diminishing returns. We have people coming back to us from GT racing, and yeah. they had, they've had a good experience in GT racing. You know, how would you not if you're going to race an Aston or a Lamborghini and big circuits and it's fast? But so actually, once the novelty, <laughs> once all of the yeah, uh, it's bragging rights a little bit. Once <laughs> once that novelty is worn off, and you get back to being about you as a driver. Mm actually catering racing was more fun yeah it it looks like a lot of fun um mm. i've one of the guys i know who's done a bunch of radical racing i've now done a, a lot less i basically stopped but i still drive the car he's mm. gone back to he's just bought an mx5 and he's doing mm. some mx5 racing yeah i've done a popular. bunch of the uh, citroen c1 endurance races yes, yeah yeah and that is it's it's like that going back and being like yeah okay the car's slow and kind of a bit crap but there's mm. 150 people going flat out. Whereas when you're worried, massively worried about your car and like any damage is like a 10 grand bill or 20 yeah. grand bill or whatever, you just, it's just a lot less fun, I think. Yeah. So um, beginning of last year, uh, we raced at Silverstone National, not the most exciting circuit in the world, uh, but it provides good racing. Mm. Um, and in the 270 race, so the third year on, we had, a, we had a, a good grid of cars. 
so you're, you've raced radical. If you went into the last lap of the race and you were three seconds behind the leader, how would you feel about that? So, uh, unlikely to catch them. It's not bad though, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be feeling good. Three, three seconds behind the leader in that race was 27th place. <laughs> so we had, I don't know, we had eight races uh, and one race we had a, a runaway winner. Okay. If we push him to one side and forget they did that and, and add up the winning margin of the other seven races, it came to 1.2 seconds. <laughs> wow. So a few years ago, I had to start paying for a finish line camera. Um, so <laughs> because we were having too many close finishes. Um, That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just great racing, you know, uh, and there's, if there, we're, we're not alone. Mini racing is, is similarly close, mm. but it's also back down in the, in the, in the club level and people yeah. sort of overlook it for more glamorous series, which actually uh, are, are nothing to watch in comparison. Yeah. No, that sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. And I think having the, like you've got your novices in year one and then they go mm. on for next year and that, that helps keep the racing closer up to a point because people are still learning mm. and you don't have just like a pro or, or, you know, someone that's been doing it for 20 years who just is like five seconds f- a lap faster no. than everyone else. No, and, and the academy has been successful enough. You know, we sell two grids a year, so we sell 56 a year for us to be turning people away um, regularly. When they say, well, mm. I've only done one race, and we just say no to them, you know, and we'll try and slot them in further up. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to lose them. We want to maintain that purity because people come in at the same level and you say it's, it's a far more even playing field. And there will be some that are naturally better than others, um, for sure, and it will spread out over time. But it means that if you're entering racing, it's really hard to just jump into any other race series because you are on the back foot in terms of experience and yeah. understanding of the car and everyone around you doesn't know you. If you're racing against the same guys for a couple of years, you're progressing in speed and in your own experience, but you know what the other drivers do because everyone yeah, behaves differently on track. It. And you, you can understand if they're going to go for that corner, where they're going to do it, or are, do they outbreak themselves a lot? All those sorts of things you build up. Yeah. And it, it makes for better racing. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge thing. Just knowing, like knowing the people, knowing the liabilities. It looks like a great, a great series. So what, what does a weekend look like from your point of view? Like, what do you have to do on a, on a weekend? A lot of walking, mostly. <laughs> a lot of walking. I'm usually horse at the end of the weekend, you know. Um, I, fortunately for me, I have a really good team and uh, everyone's really invested in it. Mm. Uh, Academy, we talk about Academy a lot. We believe it's the, as, a, as an overall product, it's the best best thing that Caterham does. Yeah, uh, And we get a huge amount of satisfaction out of it, of turning people into racing drivers. So everyone's really invested in it. Um, so I'm there for when things go a bit wrong. Otherwise, it operates quite happily without me. So I, t- I tend to spend my time just uh, wandering around to talking to various drivers um, and just seeing what's happening and, and how can we do things a bit better? You know, where can we improve? Um, where do you want to go for the future? Yeah. Uh, so my role most of the time is is probably the easiest, the least stressed, you know. <laughs> but it but it is long days. We will start, you know, at reasonable time, probably seven in the morning. But if we're fixing cars for the following following day, we'll be there till midnight, and you can have two or three days of that. Twenty five thousand steps or whatever. It, it yeah. does get tiring. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday night, you, you've, you've had enough. Yeah, I'm always amazed at the amount I end up walking on a race weekend. Not massively when I'm a driver, but if I'm like a photographer or something like that, yeah. you're, just, you're just dead, like wandering yes, around, yeah. seeing everyone, yeah. walking up and down the track. So you, you end up being quite hoarse as well, you know. Yeah. 
and uh, the, the adrenaline uh, flows when you're watching racing as well you know if there's action mm. on track you can get quite nervous about it as to what's going to happen and um, if there is an incident as well obviously that's concerning we have our fair share of uh, bumps wings come off quite a lot but fortunately it, yeah. you know um, nothing too serious but, uh, any, but it's always in the back of your mind yeah are any tracks worse than others for incidents just from like a layout slash I don't know somewhere like Cadwell Parks it's not a lot of runoff well as I said earlier on we take a, a truck full of parts um, to a circuit yeah. I, I used to tell people there's about 150 grand's worth of parts in there but actually depending on your background that doesn't sound like a lot if you're radical racing you know <laughs> a handful of parts it's a lot of catering parts you know uh, so uh, we can say, see what we sell over a weekend and then track that o- over the years to see yeah. which circuits are the best and which are the worst. And it, it's not what people think. So mm. most people will point to Alton Park as being the, you know, the circuit that's going to cause the most damage or yeah. whatever. But actually, it seems to be the ones that have a culmination of smaller accidents. And uh, Sneston 300 is is okay. the, yeah, that's, that's, that's the one that, uh, that seems to, uh, empty the truck the quickest but it's Why? very very popular with the drivers everyone really loves it yeah you know? but they're always concerned about circuits that might cause damage or autumn park you know whether that's risky or cabot park but actually it's it's it's, uh, it's other ones that uh that cause more bother yeah that's weird um, what what's what do you think so wh- where do people go wrong at seston or do people just get so excited they bump into each other it's i <laughs> It's one of those circuits where the racing's fairly close. You know, I have some good images of people crossing the line together, and I think I think it just enables it enables close racing, and that's it. You can get tangled up with each other. Yeah, and there aren't like there's lots of areas where you, people probably try overtakes that you're like, uh, probably. <laughs> well, when <laughs> you're in a, when you're in a, a, a non-aero car um, that's as small as a caterham is, there are a lot more overtaking opportunities than might otherwise yeah, be written down in the book you know um so so you can go for almost anything if you like yeah i guess because you can get like four cars wide in the <laughs> the width of yeah. like two normal gt style cars or something like that yes yeah, so you, you can fit more cars across the track as well as around the track but aero plays a sort of aero the slipstream mm. uh, and the tope they play a very big part in our racing and you've got two decent decent length straights there as well so people don't get any bump drafting <laughs> Not bump draft. Well, we say not bump drafting. Yeah, it's uh, but uh, you, you do get very close, and it has an appreciable effect, especially on the academy road sport cars with windscreens. It's, yeah. it's even stronger then. Do, do a lot of drivers? I, I know the the beginning they have to. Do most drivers do all the work on their cars? It is a mix through academy and road sport. We we demand it to a degree. Yeah. We're there to support them with the big bits, but we believe it makes them a better a better driver um, if they understand the car. Mm. you know, and what's happening to the car and they can learn around the car and we can talk about anti-roll bar settings and all these various bits and pieces. And it also stops someone just coming and throwing lots of money at a team, which would dissuade yeah. other drivers. They're probably not going to get any advantage because the regulations are really quite quite tight. As you move up through racing, there are a number of really good cater and race teams, but they're there more to offer a convenience service, you know, almost like an arrive and drive mm. rather than having to check the fuel yourself and all those horrible things that you have to do. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's more about comfort than, than than anything else. Yeah, totally, totally. Do you limit testing? I would love to limit testing. Uh, that that would be great because you know, for me, the perfect world would be that you turn up at a circuit and take your car out of a blister pack, completely yeah. fresh, and everyone's exactly the same. But in reality, testing is very popular. It seems to be the thing that uh, people like to do the most. 
Um, so there is a mix, but you can be assured that if there's a catering race at a weekend, the test day beforehand, probably two test days will be full. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably, it's one of my favorite parts of the weekend. It's like Friday testing. Cause you just race get, one. you get a lot of time in the car to just, well, actually work on your driving. Whereas when you're racing, you're dealing with the racing part of it. I rem- no, I was just going to say, I remember when, when I started out, there was one guy and we were all meant to be novices. And there was mm-hmm. one guy that was like eight seconds a lap faster than everyone else or something. And I'm like, how the yeah. hell is he that fast? Like, yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, he's done like 40 test days. Yeah. Yeah. 40. Like what? <laughs> what yeah. the hell? So you know, undoubtedly time in a car makes a very big difference and it'll bring you as a driver up to, up to your um, appropriate level of ability, mm. but it's not everything. You know, it doesn't matter how many tennis lessons I have now, I'm never going to beat Roger Federer. I, I, <laughs> I accept that, you yeah. know, but it's diff- different with cars. Very few people want to accept that they are a bad driver, Yeah. you know, or not the best driver in the world. You know, everyone thinks they're a great driver. It's one of the things we say to academy people, actually, is when you when you enter the academy, you've always acknowledged that you, by doing that, that you're, you're not the best driver in the world and you've got somewhere to learn. One of our poster boys of Academy from a few years back now, about four years ago, is a guy called Steve Tozer. Um, Steve came. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. came to the academy having done one track day. It was actually a, a birthday experience. I think his other half of bought it. Nice. And the instructor, he, uh, he just got into a chat, and the instructor happened to be an ex-academy driver. That's how he started. I don't know who it was. But he went back, Googled it, and that was it. They had to do that before they bought a house. And he did, <laughs> did his academy year. They were sleeping in the back of the trailer. You know, they did one test day before the events. They couldn't do anything else. And they're up against people that have got incredibly deep pockets. You know, to be fair, there was a, mm. there was a huge mix of, um, of financial capability on the grid. But Steve won. Nice. The least experience, the least budget on the grid. There's, there's no, no doubt about that. But he won because he was a naturally talented guy. And it, you, can't, you can't buy your way into more talent. You can just bring your experience up to the appropriate yeah. level. Everyone will get there in time. Pete Walters, who's, who's one of our top drivers, he, when he started in the academy, he was sort of midfield. But you can see him creeping up and up and up. And uh, we tipped him for a win at the end of the year, which he actually did. The next year, dominated the series. You know, he's racing against the same It just took him a little while to get to yeah. his, his speed. Uh, which happens to be faster than everyone else, but you, you're not there instantly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. If you were specking a catering, sorry, this is a slight diversion, mm. but, or what would you spec? What would be, you think, like the go-to, must-have, or you don't need that, where would you go, Where would you sit? 
it's difficult for me. Obviously, I have my own catering and I have had one for 25 years yeah. like, along, along the way. And I choose a 420R. That's really because of my track experience. Um, so I'm happy with a car with that power and it moving around underneath. Mm. I'm competent enough with that. I prefer it to the 620R, which is incredibly fast, but you end up, um, I certainly on track days, you just, on the straights, you drive up behind the next car and have to follow them around the corner. Yeah. So I feel that the 420 is a good compromise there. It still feels really, really fast, but you know, not so fast that you're obliterating everything else from running the day. Um, it's set up for oversteer, so it's not the fastest round of track by any <laughs> means. You know, other people give me a hard time, but I, I, set I want up for it. smiles. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm there it's to enjoy myself. You know, not not looking for every tenth anymore. I've, yeah. I've long given up racing. But the problem is, is actually I want two or three caterums. Mm. You know, I can only afford one, and I've only got space for one in my garage. Yeah. But um, I I came that close to buying uh, the Super Sprint when we did that as a special edition right. with the 100 horsepower Suzuki engine in. Um, uh, I, I was really torn as to whether I should sell my 420 uh, and have that instead. What was so special about that car? Everything we talked about earlier on on the 7160. Mm. It's, got a, it's got an extra 20 horsepower and a limited slip diff. So it's just amazing fun. It's ridiculous fun at relatively low speeds. Yeah. And the, the sort of period look we gave, the 1960s look, they just looked really cool as well. Mm. I think I was quite, it was it was um, the project was largely my baby in the first place, so yeah. I was quite sort of emotionally attached to it. But no, I stuck with the four twenty, and actually I've had the current one for four years. It's well overdue mm. a replacement now, <laughs> but but it would mean picking another color, okay. and that is the hardest thing in the world is is what color to paint your car. It is. Um, oh god, yeah. Uh, you can have a catering in any color you like. Well, that's you know? something I would say that's particularly good about caterums is you can pretty much put them in any color. Whereas a lot of cars, you can't do that. No, most, most you've got a, a select list to, to choose mm. from and some will paint them for um, any colour for a, a huge amount more. But you can paint your car any colour you like. Now, a lot of customers go down that path and you'd think that the best paint colours in the world are made by Porsche, Ferrari and Lamborghini because that's all they ever choose. And you can tell the staff cars because there'll be a different colour, but mine's a Citroen colour. You know, okay. one of the other guys will have a Toyota color or yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, we are a bit more focused on the color itself. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the hardest thing in the world is, is picking the color because we see so many cars go through the factory mm. to try and do something uh, different from what you've seen before. There are some great color cars, yeah. you know, don't get me wrong. I do really like them, but everyone wants their occasion to be individual. Yeah. Uh, and that's just, that's as true for us as it is for them. So, you know, you always so want something different. What color is your car at the moment? Mine is the right name, I think, is Citroen Blue Lagoon. So it's the cactus, Citroen Cactus Greeny Blue. Is it like a light greeny blue? It's like a light greeny blue, yes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. With the white, white stripes over it. Mm. I think it looks great. Yeah. It sounds, sounds like a good colour combo to me. I do like uh, blues. And I think light colours on caterums are good. Yeah, um, it varies. Uh, I think the next one could well be a grey. I know it's quite mm. uh, quite. Uh, also on trend now, if you like, but I've seen a lot of grey <laughs> colours. Um, and mini white silver, that's a great colour as well. Um, okay, I think yeah. I've only done one car so far in that colour, and I'd really like to see more of those. What often happens, though, is we'll do a press car. If we have a press car that's particularly successful for one, re- uh, one reason or another, you'll see a run of that colour. So the, um, the first 620 we built was Porsche Riviera Blue with orange stripe over it. Yeah. You may even remember it in the press, you know. And we have done so many of those. Yeah. Its predecessor was the white R500 with red stripes. It was on yeah, top. I remember gear. that. Yeah, yeah. 
when that uh, James that picked the colour for that car, he said, I'm going to we'll draw a white press car. He knew I'd like it. I like white catering, so I'm unusual in that way. He said, you know, it'd be something different. You never see a white car go down the line, which is absolutely right. White catering's as, as rare as you like. Yeah. After that, every tenth <laughs> car, every, you know, yeah. So, so you, you're always trying to look for something uh, a little bit different, but not too wild, you know. It needs to sell at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Different, um, so what are the different gearbox options? Are most just an H pattern, or just, you know, are most an H pattern, and then you can have a sequential in some of the cars? Um, put in a Suzuki gearbox, a Suzuki engine car aside, um, which is actually discontinued at the moment. We have one gearbox, which is a, a five-speed. It's an MX-5 gearbox, and then it's the, the casing is bespoke to Caterham, so it's a few bits, but otherwise, that's what it is. We used to have a six-speed gearbox. It was developed for the for the 1.4 K-series engine, which had no torque, and it needed the six gears. But the Sigma, and particularly the Duratec, they're such torquey engines, we found that the six-speed, you were having six gears for the sake of it. Mm. And actually, you're getting a, a better drive from having five gears, and you're not having to sell the gearbox so much. Yeah. Some people feel feel that, that that sort of takes something away, but when they drive the five speed, they realise that actually changing gears all the time becomes a little bit annoying. In fact, yeah. um, so that's what we stick with. And you can have the six speed, six speed sequential, which is a sad ev gearbox. Yeah, that's that's the the next one that I've been trying to get going. I haven't driven a six twenty, and I'd like to try a six twenty with a sequential just to get that. Yeah, <laughs> I driving six twenty. Every catering provides a slightly different experience you yeah. know, from the bottom, bottom and up. And when you get to the 620, again, it is, it is an entirely different experience. It's the next step up from the 420, but in terms of speed, it's, it's just out. It's like being fired out of a gun, you know? <laughs> uh, and you find yourself just slowing down and doing that acceleration thing repeatedly yeah. and then just laughing and then doing it again, you know? I'm, I'm up through the gears. It's great. Uh, we could have paddle shift. Paddle shift can be a bit flaky unless you go for an electronic type but that's probably not as engaging uh, nah. as being able to pull the lever. And um, for me, driver engagement and uh, the sense of experience is a really big thing. Yeah. You know, if I have, but getting in our car anyway, you have to put the full harness on. Always say. If I had my in. way, you'd be flicking up switches to turn the fuel pumps on and all sorts, you know, <laughs> it's just to really get that sense of, of what's going on. Yeah. When you get in a car now, you don't even have to put a key in, you just get in and press start and it starts without, you know, yeah. it's convenient, but is it actually better? You know, yeah, to, yeah. Not for. I'm firmly in the view of you should probably be rowing your own gears if you're driving a car on the road, mm-hmm. on track. I'm sort of in between. I, I could have paddles. I could have a sequential gearbox. I could have a manual. Uh, well, the, the most important thing in the world, as far as I'm concerned, uh, about having a manual gearbox, uh, certainly on track, is the ability to heel and toe. Yeah, uh, it's yes. a lot. It's a lost art. A lot of people don't even know what it is. If you can do it, and it does take a, quite a lot of practice, it is a skill. And the catering is really easy. You know, that's, that's one of the great things. There's nothing more satisfying. Mm. You know, you, you feel like a, a 1960s or 1970s Grand Prix driver if you can do these perfect downshifts. They yeah. sound great. They feel great. Your passenger wonder what the hell you managed to just do there. I <laughs> um, say so our car just lends itself to it. So you end up practicing and everything else you drive as a manual, which is far more difficult. And then when you yeah. jump into our car, it's, it's great. I've... I've always found it in the last two caterums I've driven really mm. difficult. The the spacing on the pedals, and I don't know whether you get there's a difference between wide chassis car. Do you do a wide chassis and a narrow chassis car? We do do yes, yeah, we do um, two different sizes. I refer to it as it's a bit like buying shoes. You buy, mm. you buy the size that fits. And I think one one was like a Booker Track rental car mm-hmm. that I drove, 
And I asked them about it. And I think what they'd done is they'd spaced them so that people wouldn't accidentally mash the throttle yeah. when they hit the brake. But Quite it probably. actually made, it, made mm. it impossible mm-hmm. to reach the throttle pedal. Yeah. And I guess, I guess with all the, the pedal box, are they all adjustable? Well, that's the thing is it's adjustable with spanners but it doesn't take very long to take the pedal box cover off and and play around with it and move the throttle pedal around or move the brake up and down to get what suits you because we all have different size feet and we all do it in a slightly different way as well but yes it's one of the first things to do in the car is get the pedals i'm quite a pedal Mm. prima donna actually (laughs) Uh, yeah my engineers will tell you that you know but get them set up for me so that i can heel and toe properly yeah Yeah, so you you, you tune it to yourself and that's that's what you want in the car it's nice having a car that you can actually do that because mm. most cars you get in now, if the pedals are in the wrong place, they're in the wrong place. Let's hit your stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I don't really know of any other road car where you can say, oh, I just want to adjust the pedals yeah. to suit just me a little, little bit better. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really happen, does it? You can drive them with shoes or without shoes. Those are your two options. Yeah. yeah. So, my experience with driving Caterham's on the road, I very quickly get overexcited and start driving a little bit like a lunatic. <laughs> and it's, it's one of. I think it's quite unique as an experience of a car that as far as I'm aware, everyone I know that's driven a Caterham on the road and has got some sort of an idea of what the hell they're doing ends up driving a little bit sideways, a little bit like a hooligan, every single T junction. You're like, mm, yeah, okay, give it some. <laughs> Do you think that's a unique Caterham thing? Do you find that when you drive a Caterham? Obviously not. I drive within the limits of the car and law at all times. So my follow-up question is, have you ever found yourself facing the wrong way? Um, not the wrong way. I, am, I have to be very careful about what I say, obviously. Maybe the odd reverse. Yeah, no. Um, I, I think that comes down to, I wouldn't say it's driving like a little bit, but that comes down to how easy it is to do it in the car and control mm. it. You know, if, if, if you've been driving lots of um, very powerful cars, you're going to try and power slide a 911 out of a turning or something. It's going to be a lot of drama. It's going to happen very quickly. Mm. And it's going to take up a lot of road, whereas it's, it's much easier in a in a 7, isn't it? You know, yeah. um, and you can do it sort of quietly and discreetly and, and get away with it and even stay on the same side of the road. Not that I'm saying that I've done that every <laughs> single time I drive the car every day. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like full lock in a caterham is just, you know, you just, yeah, that's you, it. Yeah. Uh, um, we, we do do different steering racks actually. So there's oh, okay. faster ones, but I'm a fan of a relatively slow steering rack, which is, is faster than a caterham, but it gives you a bit more finesse and a bit more control. Mm. Particularly if you're doing laps or around about sideways in a closed environment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. On, on your test day. Yes. Whatever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And not in front of uh, a plainclothes policeman who then stops you and tells you off. No, that would be, that would be a, that would be an embarrassing day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So when, just one little thing, or one thing, um, when some, you're setting up a car, mm-hmm. so someone's got their new catering of whatever sorts, and they take it on a track day, are, are most, do most caterings have adjustable suspension? All the R models do. So we have okay. S and R. Um, mm-hmm. uh, those letters were arbitrarily chosen um, over one long day. And you could think of them as sort of street and race. You know, one's a soft yeah. car and one's more track orientated. So all the R's do, uh, and the S, a lot of people will have that as an option. It's it's not adjustable in the way you think about it. It's, it's adjustable in terms of um, corner weights, ride height, and uh, the anti-roll bars. Okay. But that does allow you to tune the car to you in, yeah. in a way that you can't do with other road cars. How would you go about setting up a car 
from zero. Like let's say you've just taken you've taken delivery of a car, you've gone to the track, you've driven around once and you're like, mm, okay, I'd like to play with this. How would you go about that process? The hardest thing there is it's, it depends on the driver feedback. Everyone drives differently. You know, you get this misconception there is a perfect setup for a caterer and someone will try and sell that to you. This, this is what the driver won last year <laughs> yeah. on, this perfect setup. Uh, we know that, that that's, that's a complete red herring. And if you go um, and look in the garage at a Grand Prix, at the two Red Bulls, they will be set up differently for the two different drivers, yet they're achieving lap times in a hundredth of a second of each other, and one's winning one weekend, one's winning mm. another, because people drive differently. So when I talk to people about this, you, you really need to find out how they drive, which is quite yeah. hard because a lot of people don't know. You know, and it, it takes something like the academy for them to understand their own driving technique. Yeah. But perhaps the easiest thing we can do is um, with those cars with the adjustable spring platforms is um, they can uh, rock up to one of their dealers and have a flat floor set up, okay. which isn't a flat floor in the car as most people think it is. It's just done on a flat surface. It will corner weight the car and basically even it out. You know, a car isn't symmetrical. Uh, it might look like that from the outside, but the engine isn't, the components aren't, there's exhaust on one side. And in a 500 kilo car, when you get in one side of it and sit on one side, mm. you've thrown that right off. Yeah. But you're able to tune the car so the center of gravity is effectively, effectively in the center of the car and it will react to the left and to the right in, in the same ways. And that will allow you to go from there. But there, if you've got adjustable platforms, you can raise and um, lower the rear right height really easily. You can do it in five minutes on yeah. track day. And that allows you to tune the handling as at, at the circuit. You know, on a track day, you can change the setup of the car to suit your driving. Again, not many other cars you can do that on. Yeah. Certainly none that you can drive to the circuit and back again. Yeah, that's it. Do, do the academy people drive to the circuit? Well, we like to think they do. And Probably. one or two do. But reality um, is that if you want to take a few tools uh, and some of the family, then a tow car and trailer is is the way to do it you know some people start that way others are more determined and will carry on through the year but, but most people trailer it yeah yeah i think they, it provides a sense of security in many ways but it's just convenience yeah you know that like worst case scenario you're you're always getting home you're always getting home it, it doesn't matter if you didn't uh, if you didn't trailer to the circuit we will get you home we'll get you and your car back regardless oh, yeah nice. we, so we, we want to encourage people to drive the car because it's, it's those that do drive their cars a lot of the time, tend to do well because they're really familiar with the car. Now, if you've driven a Cicatrum and then jump back into a normal road car, the, the, the two are really alien. Mm. You know, the, the steering's enormously different and the pedal feels very, very different as well. So every time you, you get into a Cicatrum, you're sort of relearning that. If you're only doing it every race meeting and not using the car in between on the road, you're sort of putting yourself at a bit, a bit of a disadvantage. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that. You can log more seat time. Yes, exactly, yeah. And it doesn't matter where it is. It's just familiarity with the car. Yeah, you're way less likely to fluff a gear change or something like that if you've done it 50,000 times. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Did you have something to do with the Lego Caterham? Maybe. <laughs> uh, you're revealing darker secrets. <laughs> yes, the Lego Caterham, um, again, with yes. Was that a fun project? So uh, Carl Gidrix, who who originally designed it with Lego Ideas, I don't know mm. if you know the Lego Ideas platform. It's no, thing Lego no, no. Cre- yeah, you wouldn't unless you're a kind of Lego geek, which okay. tells you what I am. Yeah, <laughs> um, a few years ago, Lego came up with this idea, which is now called Lego Ideas, where people could submit an idea. Okay, and every quarter they would well they they put them on a website and people could vote them, and if they got enough votes, 
they collect them all together and decide whether one of them was worth producing. Okay. And they've done that with quite a few models now, actually. Carl built uh, a Lego 7 and he contacted me through Motorsport. He said, I know your name through Motorsport. I can't even remember how. Mm. But I wonder, and he tried to explain the Lego Ideas platform. Could we help? I said, don't worry, I know all about it. I mean, <laughs> house is full of Lego. I'm really sorry. So I explained it to the marketing team. Of course, we, you know, we, we helped promote it a little bit. We thought it was a great thing. I, we got sufficient um, uh, sufficient votes for it to be considered. Yeah. And then Lego phoned us up and said, uh, you know, we don't have Caterham here in Denmark because the tax is too high. Can yeah. you tell us a bit more about it? So I went on a bit of a charm offensive about uh, the car and all nice. this history and all those sorts of things and sent them some information through and uh, had quite a lot of chats with them. And yeah, we ended up um, bringing the Lego Caterham to market with them. Nice. Which was, which was really, really good. Really, it was exciting for us. Um, they are the world's biggest toy manufacturer. There is something yeah. like 20 Lego Caterhams for every real Caterham in existence. <laughs> That's quite fun. Presumably you have one. They gave me one very early in the program. So I think I was probably the first person outside of Lego to actually build yeah. one. Yeah. That, is so a, that must one. be a really cool thing. It, yeah. When you're involved in the process right from the, from the beginning, you know, from yeah. the, the, Carl's idea was great. And then you sit down with the designers and they're telling you uh, his model is good, but he can't really be played with. You know, it needs to be a bit more robust. So we're going to redesign it. Mm. And then you're talking about the colours as well. So Carl was quite a sort of old school Lotus fan and wanted to see it in green and yellow, which is, um, you know, that's, that's heritage, but it's not Caterham anymore. Yeah. It hasn't been for, you know, coming up for 50 years. We'd like to, like to have had it blue and orange, like the Caterham 620 press car, because that was yeah. a big thing, thing at the time. But Lego said we have a, a car in that colour coming out very shortly, which was the Volkswagen Beetle. I didn't know. Okay, yeah. So then we had to sort of decide what car colour would look best and most striking. So we actually took one of our press cars and wrapped it yellow and put blue, black stripes over it and said, Ta-da, what do you think to that? You know, so that it's using the existing colour you've got. It really stands out. It doesn't compete with any of the other models you've got. And they said, yeah, it's fantastic. We'll go with that. Yeah. So you, you end up with um, a lot of dealings to and fro between Legos of the drawings and bits and pieces and detail. And is this okay? And what do you think to that? Um, so yeah, it was, it was a great experience, you know, and to um, actually see it come and, and those boxes yeah. turn to reality was a fantastic thing. Yeah. Yeah, that is so cool. I've I've sort of recently rediscovered Lego mm-hmm. Technic. Or yeah. I used to love Lego when I was younger yeah. and then sort of forgot about it for a long time. Yeah. And then have started building some of the Lego Technic stuff recently and just trying to work out how I can either sell them once they're done or just yeah. do something so that I can buy more, build more, but not just have this yeah. ever growing pile of large, small vehicles. Yeah, that that is the challenge. So they they can get quite big. Yeah, um, and they do take up a lot of space, yeah. But yeah, they are cool, and you can have them inside as well. Yeah. Future-wise, mm-hmm. see, Caterham Racing is slightly independent, I guess, from the road cars, but with everything going electric and all that sort of stuff, Caterham moving forward, it seems like in a little bit of a difficult position. I don't think so. We're probably no different to the rest of the car industry in that respect, um, in that EVs are very, very expensive to make. So they are, whilst they're more expensive to buy currently, they are artificially cheap. Now, if you'd said to me three years ago, will there be an electric Caterham? I probably was, you know, very silly. They'd be jumping on the bandwagon. I think the world's moved a a long way since then, or in a very, very short period of time. we will look back in time, I think, and thank Elon Musk for it as well. Tesla has made electric cars not just acceptable, but desirable yeah. in, a, in a very short period of time, you know, much quicker than they were otherwise would. 
but one of the nice things about being here is that um, we get to experience other bits of the industry. We sit on industry bodies and um, some technology um, boards, all sorts of things. Uh, and whilst we're not necessarily playing an active part, we're absorbing all this information all the time. Mm. Uh, and we get to drive some prototype electric vehicles too. An electric caterum is a, is a, a really interesting concept. When you think about driving uh, a car like that on track, I think your mind automatically switches to an automatic. Well, I've lost my gears. It won't be as good. Yeah. It's not like a sequential. Yeah? It'll be like an automatic that's choosing the gears for me. But it's not. With an electric motor, you've got 100% of the torque all of the time. So as soon as you put your foot on the throttle, it responds in exactly the way you want it to. Yeah. So it, I'd say it's, it's almost like someone being, you're in the perfect gear all the time. Yeah. So if you drive one on track, you drive a track-focused EV car. They're not very many. I have had that experience, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you find that actually it's more like driving a go-kart in that you've just got two pedals. And yeah. you quickly just start braking with left foot, which if you've been racing radical, you're probably left foot braking already. Yeah. Um, do some left foot. So you end up just having your two feet over the pedals and you've got to go and you've got to stop. And you're focused on just that and steering. And you, you think back about gears, you're not missing anything. That's just an inconvenience to get you where you want to go. Yeah. And the, the driving experience in many ways becomes a bit more pure. So I think that an, an electric caterham could actually be an amazing car to drive. Mm. We would love to do it. We'd love to project that, uh, push that project forward. The problem is um, just the costs at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, they're, they're prohibitive um, to make it a, commercial, a commercially viable yeah. um, product. So uh, you talk about the bill of materials of the car, all the parts that go up to make it. The general industry acceptance is on an EV, 50% of the cost of all the parts that go up to make an electric car is just the battery alone. Okay, yeah. So. Presumably with that, though, because you're, let's say, most caterums are about 500 kilos. Mm. If you were to do an electric caterum, like with, you know, your power plants, you don't need a massively powerful engines and you wouldn't need massive battery packs as well. Like you wouldn't need a 100 kilowatt hour big pack that you might get in a Tesla or something because you're only moving a lighter weight. I guess it depends on what that, because the motors are still going to be quite heavy and quite big. And then the power pack is big, or the battery pack is big, heavy, I guess, as well. Yeah, there's there's no getting away from um, the weight being an issue. And our product is is built on being lightweight. You know that that um, pays dividends across the board with it. But you're right; we probably only need something like a 40 kilowatt hour battery, and a range that's around 150 miles is what people get on the petrol tank already. Yeah. And most journeys are just a little day out or just going somewhere and then recharge, and that may well be acceptable. And likewise, performance-wise, EVs are going to make uh, 0-60 kind of irrelevant. Yeah, they're all the same. <laughs> they, they are. It's, uh, how fast do you want to get to 60 and we'll just reduce the rate accordingly and go as fast yeah. as like, you know. Um, so it just comes back about the experience again. And we said, well, if you can get to 60, 0-60 miles an hour in, in five five seconds, something like that, like you can now in a, a single-powered yeah. car, that's fast enough for everyone all the time. Yeah. You know, Apart from that one time you want to be blasted back in your seat. Yeah. And as long as you can get to 100 miles an hour or so, that's probably more than enough. So that, that's my, my, my personal opinion is it doesn't need to be mind-shattering in terms of um, actual outright performance. It yeah. just deliver the same experience in, in performance terms as a, a moderate seven, and you'll enjoy it. But actually, I think it could actually make a better car. Yeah, it could be um, interesting. I think I, one, the car I drove recently, I drove an Elise recently, mm-hmm. and it had the world's quietest exhaust on it. 
And essentially, I, I realized that I, was, I just wasn't hearing much engine when I was driving. But that was a really interesting experience because you could then hear all four tires pretty much. And like, you can hear all of the way the, the car is handling the road and, you know, how the tires are working. Whereas if you've got yeah. a really loud engine, obviously it can sound great, but you can't hear all of these things. And it makes it a sort of a, almost like a, mil, a more pure driving experience. Yeah, that, that, that is the one thing that um, we will lose is, is the engine noise, you know, and there's no substitute for that. But I think maybe in time, what you find is that, that people are a younger generation coming up through cars won't listen to engine noise as being a wonderful thing, mm. but actually as a noise. And yeah. that's if you remove that noise, it's, it's a more pleasant experience. Uh, but as you say, you can hear other bits of the car, which is a bit worrying from time to time. <laughs> yeah. but, you don't want to hear what's squeaking it's, it's safer just to listen to the engine yeah yeah that random rattle that you can mm. never find that's right i think that's one of the biggest problems with electric cars they have at the moment is reducing all of these weird noises mm. yeah they're otherwise masked by um the engine noise but if you pull pull the carpets up in your car you'll just find the amount of soundproofing in there is yeah. phenomenal it's something we don't have yeah 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 you just like a couple of inches on the floor yeah Cool. Well, I normally wrap these up with five questions. Are you ready? I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but yeah, okay. We'll give, it, right. we'll give it a shot, yeah. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Yeah, there's so many things going through my mind, particularly from that period from about um, 18 to 19 that we probably best not discussed. <laughs> um, I think the first experience of Nürburgring, which was in a caterer that was very memorable, but that trip we actually drove to the Alps and back in sevens. Yeah. Nice. Uh, w- which was really good fun. You know, over all the mountain passes, the first time we did that, uh, driving through a herd of cows with big <laughs> horns that weren't very happy in a cage room was probably one of the most frightening things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> that sounds pretty fun. Mm. Oh, of, of all the sort of driving trips I've done, it's it's been the ones that have seemed like they should be a bit challenging that have been the most memorable. If it's just some modern whatever, it's never that interesting. But when you think you might not get there. Not no, get there, but... and we talked earlier on about this, uh, you know, that, that um, uh, the sense of occasion experience, mm. you know, what I'd like to do when I get in the car. Uh, Sat-nav has kind of ruined road trips because you know you're yeah. going to get there and you know you're going to find a place at the end of it. And it's, it's, it wasn't a lot more fun when you weren't really sure. <laughs> yeah, you had to take a bit more time because you could legit get lost. That's just oh, yeah. what happened. It was an adventure. To... Going on holiday to Devon was an adventure. Yeah. And then you stop at, you know, petrol station holiday, you're like, which way to this? And the person goes, well, you turn right here and then left yeah. and then right. Like, okay, well, that's it. I'm lost again now. Yeah, that's right here. <laughs> cool. Next question. Five car garage, unlimited value. Five. Five. You can have Five. a race car, road cars, whatever you like. Uh, sort of well, life. my Euro Millions car would be a Lamborghini Mirror. Mm. That's relatively easy. Um, I already have a Caterham. Yeah. I think something like a, um, a, probably a, a 250 GT short wheelbase. Mm. Yeah. What colour? Since you're quite specific about colours, actually, what colour is the Mura as well? The orange with the mm. black lower. I, 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 um, I range here, I can't remember the actual uh, the, the name. But yeah, it's, the, got, yeah. it's got to be. It's got to be, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do, as much as I love Ferrari, I, f- I feel that red ones are a little bit of a cliche, but I think you 100%. might get away with it on a, on a 60s car, on a 66. <laughs> yeah. You know, that might be all right, yeah. 
I think that's right. Um, you got three. Then that's the, so that's three, isn't it? What's your daily in this scenario? What's my daily? Well, that would change a lot. I'm I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I have an Alpha Stelvio. Mm. Uh, and I think if I had more budget, I'd have the Quadro unpronounceable version yeah. of that. Yeah, so yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love it. It's an absolutely fantastic car. It's rarely let me down. But uh, so... Got one more slot. Okay. Uh, but that, that should be relatively easy. Actually, we all already have that in our, um, some ways. We have a Jeep Wrangler, mm. uh, Rubicon, uh, quite big into off-roading. And, and uh, there is talk of upgrading that to the, to the new one as well. Yeah. I think we would go with that. as a, The new Defender is quite interesting, but I've got a soft spot for Jeeps. For the Jeeps. Have you got any funny off-roading stories in that? Um, I don't know. Funny. I don't know if necessary. I'll tell you what, they weren't funny at the time. <laughs> I, tell you that. I, I do remember uh, a trip to Wales. Uh, with a with a local group, we were, we were in our Land Cruiser at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the track gave away. Gave way. Oh wow! Uh, it gave way on the car in front, but we thought we would be okay to get across. Yeah, you know, everyone's out of the cars, and we weren't. And I ended up <laughs> with uh, a winch attached to the front of my car and to the back of uh, the car behind. Uh, we had to remove all the valuables from the car, and I had to have the driver's door open as we moved in case I needed to bail out if it rolled off the side of the cliff. Wow. So that was quite nerve wracking. That was quite memorable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a um, good story. But uh, we went to uh, Moab in Utah last year, hired a Jeep Wrangler and did some mm. of the off-roading around there. And that's just one of the best experiences, uh, driving experiences ever. That's just out of this world. That sounds wicked. I, I definitely want to do some more off-roading things because mm-hmm. it's, it's just fun and it's, it's totally different to. It's, it's, it's very different. Track. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely very different. Yeah. Right, if you could only drive one car for the rest of your life, sports car, what would it be? You're allowed like a 500 pound other thing on the side for family, luggage, whatever. Oh, you know, well, obviously, you know, it says case from here, isn't it? <laughs> People might be listening, you know, you, you never know. Uh, Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, do, do you know what? I, I would go with um, some kind of form before, probably stick with the Jeep again. Yeah. I, I, just, I, I know they're a little bit antisocial, but uh, that's why I drive an SUV every day. You know, the, the high drive position, the practicality, they're far more versatile. Uh, saloon cars don't actually make sense. Why do you want to sit on the floor in a, a slightly uncomfortable position with your feet out like that? You know, and which, boot, which, which can't company put anything you in, work right? for, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, but that, that's specific for a purpose. But a saloon yeah. car just doesn't make sense. It doesn't do any of the things that it sets out to do particularly well compared to other ways, which is, uh, you know, sort of sitting up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Yeah, you, you could lean towards the sort of Renault Espace vibe. <laughs> you you that's, could, that's, but then that's... you could still walk, and walking might be preferable. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that there's also that feeling um, when you're driving a, a, a decent four-wheel drive, you know, a proper one. There's a kind of, I wouldn't say invincibility against accidents, but, you know, should the zombie apocalypse happen, you're going to make it out. Yeah, true. You know, that, that's great. It doesn't matter what emergency befalls you. We have to be in Scotland tonight across yeah. that field. It's okay. And, and you, you just, when you're driving around in these things, that's, that's how you feel. Yeah, totally. And one of those things that like, I always get slightly jealous of is it, when I see a four by four parking and they just, just bump up over the curb, back yeah. down again. Like, what? 
Can't do yeah. that in my car. <laughs> We're in the rims. We, we do that probably more than is utterly necessary because, because it's good. Yeah. yeah you can just yeah. drive straight over curbs and do U-turns across the uh, bumps in, in the centre. Yes. Yeah. Well, like you're in a car park and you want to get to the other side of the car park and you're mm. like, oh, I'll just go over here. Boom, just boom, go boom. across. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Okay. What do you think is the best valued car for under 50 grand? Wow. I can't say I, I pay a, a huge amount of attention or, to it. Yeah. Or <laughs> most undervalued car at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be a cliche. I would say the, the best value car under 50 grand is an academy car and the academy package. If you are yeah. a car nut, if you are a car person, yeah, the experience you will get out of that is like no other. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the year, when we have our awards dinner and people have a reasonable amount to drink every year, and it was, I think it was about three people said to me this year, this was the best thing I've ever done in my life. You know, from a nice. job point of view, nothing gets better than that. Yeah. But you're, you're making dreams come true. Otherwise, undervalued, um, I really would struggle to answer. I think that's a good point you made, though. Yes, you can, let's say, buy a car. But to get value out of a car, there's one that's just like monetary. You don't lose too much. Mm. But there's another huge side of it is the experience you get out from owning that car. And like you said, you do something like the Academy, the experience you get out of that mm. is massive and the memories you will have, you will have forever. It, and it's, a, it's a lifetime experience. No one will regret it, you know, and the residual value is quite good. So actually it doesn't cost you that much at, yeah. at the end of the day, but that's the best, that's the best thing. Otherwise, in terms of sort of undervalued or uh, people are too quick to um, go and buy something that might make sense. One of my colleagues is selling his Cayman. Yep. And it, it, I, th- I think he wants under 12 grand for it. Mm. And it looks a million dollars, you know, and you could own that and you put a private plate on it if you're that way inclined. No one would ever know. And you'll feel good and about it. you've got it. a great you, car. You, yeah. You, you feel you've made it in yourself. You've owned a Porsche. Everyone should own, yeah. if you're, again, if you're a car, everyone should own one of the big brands at some point in their life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, there's a lot to be said to that. Right. Final question. Mm-hmm. What is the most interesting car to you at the moment? What are you looking up? What are you Googling? What are you going, mm. This is when you're like, we have a new blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always <laughs> talk about catering. Yeah, I, yeah. You'd be surprised. I don't get home and uh, Google caterings. You know. <laughs> Some weekends uh, I open a garage and go out for a drive. And other weekends yeah. you open a garage and go, ah, and close it back up again. <laughs> I never want to see another one in my life. Yeah. Well, that's like the hardest question ever. Um, I don't spend a lot of time Googling other cars. Fair enough. It, there's, perhaps it's uh, one of the negatives of working here is that other things don't interest you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can drive other cars that they don't give you the same experience. So current cars, not a lot. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of older cars, which I absolutely love. Mm. And perhaps, yeah, if I'm honest, uh, that, that five car garage we talked about, yeah, we'll bin the alpha out of it. I'll use one of the others for another day. The car that I spend most of the time looking about and lusting after is a Ford Capri. I've had, Nine or ten, I can't remember now. <laughs> That's probably why I like oversteer. Yeah. It's probably why I still can actually control it as well, just about. I think they're a great looking car. A great looking yeah. car. Very cool. And the, the prices on them are just horrendous now. So we've missed the boat. Yeah. I'm very, very sad about that. Oh. Um there's there would always be room in the garage for one. For three liter S. You know? What's a, what's I, I don't know much about them to be honest. In terms of the the three litre S, what what were there either side of that or right? Okay, how does that uh, sit in the Ford Capri range? 
the, the three liter Rest, the three liter Rest was the pinnacle, mm. the pinnacle of cars in sort of like 1979. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's for, um, it was 136 horsepower. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's, it's more than that 80 in the catering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, four on the floor. Um, it was just epically cool. You yeah, know, I mean, uh, by today's standard, it's not even close to fast. You know, no, uh, the old RS two thousands, another one in, in that boat. But I'm oh, a yeah, person, yeah. You know. uh, yeah, so it, it was the fastest of the of the Ford range, and it was what um, um, uh, every sort of young person wants at the time. It was just mm. a cool, affordable car, uh, and anyone that's a little bit younger than me would argue that it was never cool, but it was, <laughs> it, it, it was very cool. And, uh, my, my dad, he had a couple of Capri's as uh, company cars and he had a, yeah. a two, a two liter S with a vinyl roof at one point. And at that point, he was the coolest person in the world as far as I was concerned. You know, <laughs> yeah. that, that, we'd made it, we'd made it. We had an orange Capri on the driveway. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Every 10 years or so every new generation of people has these have these cars don't they well interestingly um during the lockdown period um mm. we, we obviously had a lot of staff off yeah. and so we wanted to engage with them and keep talking to them throughout time so we were doing various surveys with staff each week to see you know and some were about business some were about life in general and some were about yeah. cars and we asked uh we asked a lot of people um, similar questions you've asked me money no object what car would you have and on a more realistic basis you know, if you could spare a bit more cash, what would you buy? Yeah, the F40 was the standout winner. In the, really? Uh, yeah, it, it, that that was the one. It was a, it was a really eclectic mix of cars. Yeah, you know, there, there, there wasn't very many overlaps. The F40 was was a, was a popular choice. But then there was a generational shift um, away from people my age. So if you could afford a in the reasonably priced bracket, yeah. if you like, uh, 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 there was a lot of love for the hot hatches. Mm. Um, so the the Golf and um, the Focus RS. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were what people want these days. You know, um, I look at those, they're front wheel drive. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> Get a real car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, but we have, we have four cars, uh, and, uh, yeah, we have purged our life of front wheel drive cars. Yeah. Well, even, even the Alpha's four wheel drive. No, it's, it's, it's very interesting following these trends because you see cars that are expensive now. And, but that's because probably the people, who, when they were growing up, these cars came out and they've now got money and they're all buying them and that's why they've gone up. But when you look forward and go, okay, well, what's going to be expensive in the future? And then obviously these things will start to come down again. Like for my generation, it was always like, yeah, it's like hot hatches and stuff like that. And then also cars from video games. Okay, so yeah. if you played like Gran Turismo, yes, yeah. there's all these like PlayStation cars. So um, yeah, like a... Viper GT2 racing mm. car it was like mm. that was the one everyone had when they first had Gran Turismo mm. and yeah um, Skyline yeah Skyline exactly. GTR Skyline, was exactly. uh, uh, yeah and all of these like sort of import tuner Japanese cars and stuff like that are definitely going to become and keep going to be more and more and more and more popular as time goes on until they get replaced by electric cars and then I don't even know where you go from that point well I say you know electric cars could could, uh, could still be interesting um, I don't see any reason why not. It'll just it'll just be the noise we lose. Um, yeah, uh, I, I do worry about the performance thing because it will become an entity. But um, yeah, who knows? I mean, in some ways, you could consider the car dead already. <laughs> if, you, if you look at a Tesla, yeah, which I would very much like actually. 
is that a car first or is it a technology product first? And I'd argue that actually it is a piece of technology that moves about. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um, it's, it's not a car first. Yeah. I could hundred percent get behind that theory. Uh, it, it leaves a place for people like us in the, in the mm-hmm. catering world, you know, of, of giving back that, yeah, that driving experience for the small people of what people that, uh, um, still want to drive. Yeah. And, and as you said, like all electric cars, essentially now they're all, even if you get your SUV electric car, this just stick to Tesla because they make the fastest ish ones. That's faster than a modern, not to 60 and you can only go 60 miles an hour on a mm. road in the UK. They're like sub three seconds. Now, most modern supercars, unless they're four wheel drive, they're only yeah. they're going to be the same. So yeah. your performance numbers that you're raving at down in the pub because you've spent 200 grand on a McLaren and someone's like, yeah, but I've got an SUV that'll do that with four kids in the back. Yeah, <laughs> like, so it, it, it comes completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. So it, it's about the experience that it gives you. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, you can you can then just focus on the other things. So if you go, mm. performance is not the be all and end all because literally every car now is really fast. Mm. Then you're like, oh, maybe a manual gearbox and something. A manual light, gearbox, heel and toe, your gear changes exactly. Mm. This art that may become lost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Well. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been very enjoyable. Um, yeah, I hope I uh, uh, answered most of those questions fully. Yeah, it's good. Um, I, I'm sure I'll go away from here and say that five car garage is nothing like I <laughs> <laughs> That always happens, though. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.